0: Good morning. (laughs) Welcome to Denton North Church, where even when we try and meet on Zoom, we have problems with the weather. Uh, But we're glad you guys are here and uh, we're gonna get started with worship in just a minute. And then we'll see what happens after that, um, what our technology is gonna support. Um, And don't forget about the prayer meeting is tomorrow night at seven. Um, and so if you want to join us for that, that'll be a time to meet with the elders and pray. If you can't join, but you want something specific prayed for, then you can put that in the Google document that's in the newsletter.
1: Yeah, I, and I had an, another announcement about the pastoral cohort info session. Um, so I brought it up last time, but we'll uh, the new co- pastoral cohort will start in June. Um, and we wanna give people a chance to learn about like what the pastoral cohort is. So we'll be having info sessions coming up within the next month. Um, and it's pretty informal. Like we'll go through like a PowerPoint and just kind of share about like what it is at a high level but also just answer like questions and share about our experiences and stuff like that. Um, but if you're interested in uh, going to the info session and learning more about it, you can contact me, Hannah Ortega or Ryan Boucher. Um, and then we can figure out based on who's interested in their schedules and plan around like when we want to do the info session based on those schedules. But yeah, just hit us up if you're interested and we can um, start planning that.
0: Anybody else have an announcement this morning?
2: Uh, yeah, I can talk about showcase. So pretty much every year Focus puts on this fundraiser to um, raise money for our student leaders. So we're still doing that this year, even though it's gonna be a digital kind of experience, but. We're still figuring out all the details of what it's going to look like, but we'll still plan on having some sort of digital show on April 3rd, and we're going to have like some cool stuff. We're going to have like yeah. a, a mentalist illusionist guy this year.
0: Who's apparently um, performed all over the place. So. Yeah.
2: So it's going to be really cool. We just posted about it in the, in the Facebook, but yeah, just put that in your calendar. So we'll give more details as that kind of comes up.
3: So we're going to start um, at the moment. The plan is to start meeting together again outside the GDAC on March 14th. And write this down, it's going to be at 9.45 a.m. And we'll be distancing and wearing masks, bring your own chair, kind of get into the habit of that again. And um, there may be some rain, you know, in the spring. And so we'll keep an eye on the weather and stuff and keep you guys updated if that's going to change things. But for now, just write down March 14th, 9.45 a.m., BYO chair and mask.
4: Okay, cool. So, um, sorry, this sort of, there's been some weird last minute stuff so this might not be as smooth as we normally aim for but we'll see how it goes <laughs> so the uh the theme for this month is the fall and uh the theme for this specific day is the snake crusher which is cool because it sounds like it could be a, like a title of a metal song or something <laughs> so anytime we can get that into our worship that's just going to be a good thing so we went, we went with that name um, and the idea of that is in genesis 3 when god is pronouncing the curse is the curse for the snake is that a descendant of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent and that's uh, taken as the first prophecy of the Messiah and uh, so we're going to watch a Bible project video that kind of picks up that thread and carries it to Jesus and then there's also a painting that we'll reflect, re- reflect on and so we'll have, it's going to be a little bit of a different format. We're going to do the video and the painting and then have a couple minutes for like individual uh, silent, like reflection time just by yourself. And then instead of going to breakout rooms, we'll all stay in this big room together. And then we'll just offer up some prayers of praise and thanksgiving uh, in response to the prompt. So that's what we're gonna do. I'll start a screen share.
5: There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve and they're in the garden of Eden.
6: And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake, and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost, and evil and death enters into God's good world.
5: Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean... This thing
6: is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But
5: there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to
6: Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve, and this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So
5: it's like a mutual destruction.
6: Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise and it's just left hanging there until the next Key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah and he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there will be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome.
5: The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David, and he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher.
6: But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give into the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods.
5: Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon
6: just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promise king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people.
5: But the Old Testament ends, and the
6: snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, Not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises.
5: Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David judah and abraham
6: and he goes around israel announcing that the goodness of god's kingdom is here now and he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them by forgiving them of their sins and evil many people are now believing that this is in fact the promised king but jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself
5: the fatal snake bite wound
6: exactly And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead.
5: And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself.
6: And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives.
5: But even still, death and
6: evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all, and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth.
4: Alrighty. Thanks, y'all, for watching that. And thanks, uh, Tim and John, from Bible Project. Um, So now we're gonna have a couple minutes to uh, quietly reflect individually. And this painting is titled, Mary Comforts Eve. And it's also kind of exploring this connection between the Garden of Eden and the incarnation of Jesus. Um, And by the way, I should have said this up front, but the incarnation is where we're going uh, next month. That's gonna be the theme for the first part of uh, March. And so this is kind of bridging the gap between the two months today. Um, So we'll spend a couple, minutes uh, in silence reflecting on this painting, which explores the same themes as the video and reflecting on these questions. And uh, we've got our big three as usual. Um, and then I also added this bonus one, like how have you experienced God's comfort in the midst of your sin? Um, so we'll spend some time reflecting on this individually and then we will uh, all in the same group together, I'll stop screen sharing, and then we can uh, just kind of popcorn pray together, prayers of thanksgiving and praise. Um, for the stuff that we're reflecting on today so we will do that all right so uh, now we're just going to pray together and i'll start us off and then it'll just be popcorn and feel free to just jump in there and offer prayer so i'll start us god thank you for not leading us to our own devices to try to bail ourselves out of our sin thank you that you've always Been focused on pursuing us and bringing us back into the light and back into truth and back into goodness. Um, Thank you that there's a solution to our sin, our individual sin, our societal sin, all of it, um, and that you invite us to be a part of it. And uh, yeah, we just thank you.
7: Uh, Yeah, God, uh, thanks for uh, just thank you for being with us despite. Our stuff that we have, um, I in the in the story we can kind of see how like there's just this lack of trust from the first humans uh, towards you, uh, and so I just pray that we, I pray that we would have trust for you, whether it's uh, in the direction of our church, uh, where we're supposed to be in the future. or If it's like just anything in our personal lives that we wouldn't nitpick on the minor things and on the small things and just realize that you're good and that, um, we would really trust you, uh, give us trust in our hearts and help us, uh, be understanding and loving to others.
8: God, I just thank you that you uh, showed us from the beginning how um, destructive disobedience to you is and that you call us to understand that you're a loving father who is faithful and loves us unconditionally. And that even though Adam and Eve chose to sin that you already had in motion a means for us to be uh, drawn back to you. And that this video just shows so clearly again, your faithfulness and your love for me and for each one of us in this community and in the world. And I just um, pray that you'd just be able to instill in us through a close relationship with you and loving other people in this church family and loving other people outside of your will um, to truly understand and demonstrate and be confident of your unconditional love and of your plan and how perfect it is. Thank you, God. We love you so much.
0: God, I just thank you for your ability to accept us as flawed humans. Um, I know that in the image I saw just the shame that I carry in my own sin. And in Mary's comfort for Eve, I saw the love that you have and your acceptance for me, even when I'm not perfect. Um, And I know that you do that for every single one of us in the church. So I just pray that you teach us how to do that for one another, how to comfort one another and how to bring each other to you
8: in the same way that you have promised to do for us.
4: Amen. I think we can wrap it up there and move on to whatever is next. All
9: right. Well, I've got consistent power back. So hopefully you can hear me. Our house is still without power, but I've got some candles in the hotspot now. So working, working with it. Um, I want to challenge you guys to pay closer attention to this worship activity. Um, It's repetitive for a reason, so that you can understand every day what's going on and what to expect. And these sub-themes are just a help uh, for us focusing on something every month. I've been in a number of these groups, and some of you are just silent, quiet, like waiting for someone else to talk. Like you've had the prompt the entire week and the entire like last six months, (laughs) Um, and so there should be something happening in each of these and people sharing and being a part of that and being active. And I think it's important that you think that when you're in these groups and you're not saying anything, you're not thinking, you're not asking questions. It'd be like the same as just going to church and not singing, which if that's what you're into, okay. Um, but this is you participating in worship, talking, listening, responding to what other people have said. And so I'd like you guys to take this a little bit more seriously. Um, because I think that uh, these are cool things that we're doing. It's repetitive for a reason. We're trying to add in some liturgy. Aaron and Grant spent a lot of time on this. Um, So that's just a kind of a charge and an encouragement for you um, to really pay closer attention to this uh, each time. All right. And if you have questions about it or thoughts or, you know, things that you'd like to see us uh, do differently, you can always talk to us about it. If there's something we're missing or it doesn't make sense, or you think we could do something better, that's great. Uh, Of course, once we start meeting in March, this will get a little bit easier uh, in some ways. So uh, that'd be great, too. All right. Uh, So we are going to talk about the Trinity today. Yay. Uh, The Trinity. Oh, my goodness. Well, let me throw out some scripture references here. So uh, we're going to end up reading these. And so that way you can kind of be prepared for them. The first one's going to be 1 Corinthians 1, 17. Can someone volunteer to read that when the time comes? 117 okay great first corinthians 8 in verse 1 someone want to read that one i'm sorry i can only see one screen so if you're raising your hand okay i, I can't see okay so sean it's got that one all right john 14 in verse 15 someone got that one i got it okay tony's got it. sterling you want one too are you about to say something uh sammy wanted one yeah okay, sammy true. you sammy you get numbers 11 verse 23 and then um philippians 2 somebody got that one
0: i can get that one
9: okay philippians 2 verse 6 i think oh let's do um, two more. Matthew 23 and verse 37. I can get that one. Okay. Barely heard you, but whoever that is, great. And then 1 Peter 2. All right, that should do us. Okay, so um, the Trinity. Yeah, one of the most telling signs, I think, of a conspiracy theory is just how simple it is. <laughs> how not complex the explanation of some group of people doing some weird strange illegal behavior actually is all right don't get me wrong crimes are often you have very simple explanations. Um, but the more people involved, usually the more complex, it actually is, and so a lot of conspiracy theories try to reduce things simplify things all that good stuff. I've been watching Narcos, which again, you know, don't watch, can't be watching things that I watch because I'm a bad example. And the different moving pieces there are so complex that no matter how you phrase it, it's just complicated. It's, it, it, the conspiracy theories remind me a little bit of Christian movies where there's like an obvious bad guy and an obvious good guy. There's no nuance. It's very simple. It's very reduced. Um, kind of same thing. All right. So it's kind of like that with the Trinity, um, except of course, it's not a conspiracy. Uh, The Trinity is far more complex than we give uh, it credit for. Uh, God's relationship uh, to the different parts of the Godhead are complex, but we can explain some of them. But we've gotta be very careful that we don't substitute the complexity for some simple explanation, all right? With in-depth scriptural look like we'll do today, uh, we can understand some things about the Trinity. Although there have been many attempts in the past to explain the Trinity away, probably one of the most famous heresies, which is still uh, well and, or alive and well today, is modalism or the oneness movement, right? That this, the Trinity is not separate, uh, that these are just modes that God has been in and can be in at any given time. So he can be the Father, he can be Jesus, he can be, you know, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Uh, there's modes to God. Now, that settles a lot of things. It makes it so much easier to not, you know, to think he's just sort of like morphing into different things. Of course, the problem with that is the scripture doesn't bear that out at all. And in fact, when the different modes of God, according to this theory, are talking to each other, that would be like God having dissociative identity disorder. (laughs) He's literally talking to these other personalities within him. That that is not a very good explanation uh, or treatment of the Trinity in scripture. And so we reject that, reject that heresy, although it certainly makes things more simple. Um, And we're going to go on to to understanding that the Trinity is complex, that there are some things that we can definitely figure out. So a few things as kind of a primer before uh, I split this up into just two simple ideas. Why the Trinity, here are some easy answers. Why the Trinity, here are some complex questions, all right? So the first of those is that the Old Testament doesn't call God Father much, all right? The New Testament does. Jesus in particular calls him Father. You ever notice that? He's just not called Father very often in the Old Testament. Um, but he certainly was the Father of Israel. And, and when he is called the Father, that, that, uh, the, the majority of those scriptures are about him being the Father of Israel and so his uh, fatherhood really seems kind of defined to this people group, um, but the general sense that God is a father, even to Israel, wasn't something many of them thought of, okay? Uh, it, the Trinity wasn't really well developed uh, in, in the Old Testament times, poss- you know, partially because you know, pe- when people heard Lord um or heard about the holy spirit they often just attributed that to different aspects or names for god obviously the trinity couldn't really be explained until we have jesus in person and we have the holy spirit given to us in our lives right um that's just sort of the timing of it all kind of has to happen in that order but not only that but just the idea that god would be that close with his people was such a strange idea to the ancients all right God being powerful meant that he wasn't close to humans, all right? Gods were supposed to be useful, but they're also supposed to be revered and feared much more than we do today. Remember what happens at the Ten Commandments, uh, or at Mount Carmel with the, uh, with the Ten Commandments, when uh, you know, Moses offers up God will speak to his people, The people are like, heck no, we don't want to hear that. You know, they hear his voice, they're terrified, they say, Moses, you go up, you take care of it. This is the relationship the ancients had with gods, far off, powerful, fearful, useful, sure, but there wasn't some relatable aspect um, to them. And so the Trinity becomes very offensive to the Jews and later Muslims who prided themselves on monotheism. Okay? And of course, the Jews had this issue, too, with, you know, they would go back and forth between having multiple gods and then finally deciding that they have one god. You look back through the prophets, this is the main issue is that they're worshiping multiple gods, which was a very common thing in ancient Near East cultures. The closest uh, comparison today would be um, Hindu Hindu gods, which are useful. They're specific. There's hundreds of them um, and took a long time for God to kind of finally get it in their head. No, I am the only God. And so the idea of Trinity was probably a little bit too much to handle. Uh, For many of them when Jesus came, even though the scripture bears some of that out. All right, so it was offensive to the Jews and, of course, later Muslims, monotheistic people, but was also really confusing and kind of a little bit laughable later to uh, the Greeks, the Romans, and later, you know, in our own day and age, naturalists and atheists. Because it's very important to to understand there are a lot of serious uh, religious scholars who take the idea of God. Um, and it's, and it's po- his possibility of being you know, in existence and working in the world very seriously. But there are no religious scholars <laughs> apart from theologians who have anything good to say about the Trinitarian ideas in Christian theology. They laugh at it. It's a laughable idea to have a God in these separate, but one. It just makes no sense. OK, rationally speaking. And so if you were to try to get a, a religious scholar, to talk to you about the trinity you would have a very different difficult time them even taking you serious uh without actually uh, them having some sort of faith uh in the christian god all right so um those are kind of a, a primer for you to think about this this topic and the scripture very much is okay with jesus and ultimately spirit, uh, the spirit being a stumbling block uh for people a stumbling block that which is an idea that goes way back to isaiah Uh, talking about that God is going to do something amazing and talking about Jesus that will cause some to stumble and will cause others uh, to be saved. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 17. This is a longer passage, and we're going to read 1, uh, verse 17, until the end of 2. So through 2 and then the end of 2. And I'm giving you this because, for one, it helps explain what we're going to talk about today, but it also gives you a disclaimer for talking about very difficult things. We often want to, at the end of a sermon like this, or a book, or a class, have a mastery over what it is um, we've talked about. But if there's one thing that we'll learn, and Paul says, which we'll read in 1 Corinthians 8, the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know. Okay? And to really delve into a topic deeply is to first get over the hump of thinking that you know something. (laughs) Uh, it's to understand that, oh my gosh, there's so much more about this, I never knew that I didn't know, all right? And so, yes, First Corinthians will help frame this Trinity thing for us, but it will also give us uh, sort of a warning and disclaimer for the conversation we're having today. So 1 Corinthians 1.17, the quick backdrop here is Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, which is a very challenging, difficult church, very much like the American church in terms of how divisive it is, um, how some, some of the rich and powerful have been exploiting um, the lesser, uh, and just how you know people have these sort of names and factions, and Paul is trying to kind of help them see that all the stuff that they <laughs> think is so wise and impressive uh, really isn't at all, um, and that's not even how God works in the first place. So yeah, go for it. First Corinthians 17.
8: For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to, to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who among men know the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ.
9: So there's a lot there. Um, I would encourage you to go back and read this, even memorize parts of it, be very helpful. Um, I reference this passage so many times because it's such an important part of Paul's gospel, so to speak, and what he uh, believes about wisdom, knowledge, understanding things, um, and then also just the Spirit's uh, role in the Trinity which he says very much there knows our own thoughts and minds better than we do and knows God's thoughts and mind better than we do and allows us to kind of have a a mind of Christ uh, as the spirit is within us. And so that'll become important as we move through this. But I will encourage you that some of these ideas are hard. They're tricky. They might already have made you uncomfortable um, because they kind of rock the foundations of your faith. Uh, That's the point. Uh, The stumbling block is that. It's having to be forced into a situation where you have to make a decision whether you believe this or not, and whether it's just simply laughable uh, or, um, you know, the different other responses that we'll see people have given um, in the scripture in the past. So let's read 1 Corinthians 8 as sort of like a, a charge, a warning, a disclaimer, a one through three, and then we'll move on in. <clears throat>
10: now
1: about food, sacrifice, idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God.
9: All right. So again, the idea is not mastering a deep theological reflection about some of these things as much as it is about understanding in a relationship. And we've gotta be okay with not knowing certain answers to things. So I have two things here for you fairly quickly. Uh, One, why the Trinity, as in, like, why, why, (laughs) why this, of all things, um, that has, again, caused so much trouble with Christian theology, uh, and is really kind of the deciding and differentiating factor, um, maybe among other things, but I would say that flow out of that, uh, that separates Christianity from other world religions. So, so why the Trinity, the somewhat easy answers, that's gonna be my first point. The second point, so why the Trinity, the very complex questions. So not that that's going to really help you, but at least gives some structure to what we're talking about. All right, so the easy answers. Uh, for one, it's just he is who he is. Okay. People like to talk about God in those terms. He talks about himself in those terms to Moses. I am who I am. Again, poses an interesting question why he doesn't say we are who we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the Trinity, but I am who I am. So that could be an easy answer. Um hopefully. And maybe that settles it for you. And if so, maybe that's good. Maybe it shouldn't. Um, but it's just who God is. There's no way around it. It's, you know, it's not like he chose necessarily to be like this. He is. He's existed from all time. Um, but even that whole idea of choosing how to be something, <laughs> uh, he certainly has chosen how to reveal himself. And I think that becomes a more important point so a relationship at the core that this is just a relationship people have talked about this all the time there's this relationship god is not just a single being there's these these three beings in one and at the core of who he is it's a relationship. i guess maybe some kind of wonderful independent trusting relationship maybe sort of like how marriage is supposed to work and how you're supposed to be one flesh you know with each other kind of sounds right but there's so many problems with that analogy not the least of which is God never really talks about himself like that. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, what do we do with this? It it is who he is. That's an explanation. And I guess you could rest on that, but I think the scripture at least gives us some um, more knowledge, uh, maybe more in the way of um, thinking deeper about who God is than, uh, than just staying there. Let's read John 14, 15 through 31. Is a really important passage for understanding the Trinity. Um, There's a lot, but this is certainly one of them. So let's go ahead and read that, John 14. Verse 15 to 31.
10: If you love me, obey my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because he isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives within you, with you now and later be in you no i will not abandon you as orphans i will come to you Mm. soon the world will no longer see me but you will see me since i live you will also live when i am raised to life again you'll know that i am my father i am my i am in my father and you are in me and i am in you those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me and because they love me my father will love them and i will love them and reveal myself to each of them Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Any who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now, while I am still with you. But when the father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give you is the gift the world cannot give. So do not be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I'm I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you will be happy that I am going to the father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before before they happen so, they will, so that when they do happen, you will believe me. I do not have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the father requires of me so that the world will know that I can love the father. Come, let's be going.
9: Okay, a lot there. Um, but there's a lot of confusing stuff that we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, About these relationships. But I think probably one of the hardest things about this is that we, it's sort of like a disappearing act. Um, You get one guy there and then another guy leaves and then the other guy comes in the picture, but they don't ever seem to be like all there at once. That's a really terrible way of reading the scripture. (laughs) You think the Old Testament God existed, the New Testament Jesus comes, then Jesus is gone and now the advocate comes. You can see why some people in sort of a casual reading of the scripture. could think modalism would make sense, a simplistic explanation for God just sort of changes shapes. But I think there's a bigger issue here and that's that we have a tough time understanding who we are as people. I remember trying to explain the Trinity at Collin College back in like 2006, 2007. And the first thing that kind of came to my mind, I had really hadn't thought much about it. And it's again, got all kinds of problems. But I, I said, you know, it's kind of like your body, your spirit and your mind. They're sort of like all things that make up you, um, and, uh, you know, but they're important, and, and without it, you know any of them, you really wouldn't be who you were, uh, and that was the best I could kind of come up with, but we got to be honest. We love Jesus for a reason, and that reason is God-given in some ways, but we love him because he's the embodiment of God. He's the easiest person to think about, to pray to, to talk about, to understand, all right? And on the other hand, the spirit in some ways is easy, too, because we're just like, what is that? We don't even know. I don't. It takes us so long to even remember to call the spirit he or she or, you know, uh, have no real clue what that means. We use the spirit in very um, non-human ways. And so we kind of we're kind of okay and to some degree with just referring to the spirit in really non-personified terms. Um, So the father is really the problem for many of us because we sort of expect him to be embodied. And at times he is personified as embodied, okay? Uh, But throughout scripture, he very much doesn't have a body. (laughs) So he's kind of in the middle between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that really kind of throws us for a loop. Um, You know, uh, notwithstanding the pictures we have of grandpa Jesus and, you know, hair, long flowing white hair, we don't get anybody seeing Jesus. Now we get him talking, his voice, but even when he talks, he often talks about the spirit of the Lord says. So what does that mean? Does that mean God's spirit? Or does that mean the Holy Spirit? Does God have a separate spirit than the Holy Spirit? This just gets really, really tricky. And so when you go back through and actually look through some of these passages, you do see the Holy Spirit and you see Lord, which is often the name we call Jesus, present in many of these interactions. And so, while the Old Testament folks weren't meant to to see that, believe that, understand it, the New Testament makes that clear that God was revealing as much as they needed to know and could understand and could fathom as time went on. All right. So we try and picture the Father with a body to make it easier. Jesus tells us we ought to worship it in the Spirit and truth. <laughs> Doesn't make it easier. Uh, You could go the route of Mormons and believe that God actually does have a body, and that in heaven he will be walking around embodied, just like Jesus, Uh, and uh, you know that kind of makes it simple, but again the scripture just doesn't portray it like that, although there are some things about God, his arm his face, that we get uh, a picture of, so this is tough. Okay. We don't really know what's going on often in the Old Testament um, until we try to perceive it with the eyes of the New, uh, at least when it comes to the Trinity. So I want to read numbers to give you sort of a a quick illustration of this. All right, this uh, takes place when the Old Testament folks who are in the desert, the Jews are tired of manna, they want meat, all right, and so God's very angry with them um, because they don't trust him, Uh, but Moses has this really close relationship with God, uh, where they speak whatever that looks like we don't really know but it does seem to be like in response and immediately versus some of the prophets who just sort of get a vision so numbers eleven twenty three 23 through 24
7: the lord answered
9: moses is the lord's arm too short now you'll see whether or not what i say will come true for you so moses went out and told the people what the lord had said he brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. That's it? So 24? Oh, um, keep going, and I'll tell you when to stop. <laughs>
4: okay. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with
9: him, and he took some of the power from the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Elded and Medad. Sorry. So you've got this weirdness. You've got him speaking. You've got him talking about his arm. You've got him taking his spirit, putting it on other people, and later on, he's he is going to be personified as the wind, bringing all these quails in, so that they can eat all this like quail meat. Um, It's just confusing, right? Uh, It's there's a lot of personification that goes into. Talking about how God is and, and who he is. All right, so let's, let's talk about some of the complex questions here. Uh, so, why the Trinity, the complex questions? Number one, there seems to be a hierarchy. Uh, and I think that's probably what's tricky for many of us is like, can this relationship be independent, mutual, if there seems like there's a hierarchy? Jesus says he does Father says. Spirit, the point back to Jesus relationship be a hierarchy at the same time (laughs) like i think it can but is it a hierarchy and what does that say if it is a hierarchy that you've got sort of answers to even the whole father son analogy is very difficult for us because obviously the father's in charge and the son is not um yet however even in john 14 you get the sense that i do what the father says because i love him not because i have to right um is there this, this hierarchy? Uh, Let's read Philippians 2, 6 through 11.
0: Who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that the name of Je- that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father.
9: All right, so the challenge with this should be somewhat obvious. We're saying in the same passage Paul is That Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be, excuse me, taken advantage of, but that because of that, God appoints him or puts him up in a higher position. So it's very tricky. Like, what do you do with that? How do you make sense of this equality, hierarchy, certain components with God doing all three did that versus just the Father did it sort of on his own? Um, this, these are just tricky questions, uh, and there's nothing wrong with us asking. I think, uh, some of the, the, the most helpful explanation for this particular complex question is that the scripture often is talking about roles and function rather than position. We tend to think a lot in terms of hierarchy and authority of position, but when you have people who are mutually submissive to each other, there's no real need for this kind of positional hierarchy or positional authority. Um, but still, that doesn't do it, you know, full justice. It still makes some things pretty tricky when we're talking about uh, the various relationships. Uh, the last question I have, that's like kind of the complex question is, did, so do did the entities have like different personalities or are they consistent? Because could, couldn't they technically have different personalities, but still be consistently doing what they do? Like that Christian book, The Shack that came out, um, not too, I guess it was like a decade ago, kind of presents the, the relationship Uh, of god to himself very interesting (laughs) i won't go into it because it would be confusing Uh, i'll do a much more simple explanation and that's we kind of treat god like the grandpa like he's kind of just Mm -hmm. and in charge jesus is sort of like the kind but stern father that we actually relate with and the spirit's just sort of like that weird cousin that we kind of like to visit every now and again but like not really because they're kind of too artsy or strange or whatever We just, this is weird. Are there these different personalities? Or, and are we, what are we supposed to take from that? Uh, And and what does that mean? So hopefully I've challenged you a little bit in your, maybe possibly shallow, or at least just kind of not well thought out uh, ideas about the Trinity, uh, which I think, as I'm going to make clear, hopefully in a moment, should be something that we stumble over, should be something that we consider. So I'm going to give you three practical takeaways here, very quick. And then we'll be done. We will never make complete sense of this crazy relationship, <laughs> because we have nothing to compare it to. nothing to ground it in, okay? Not completely. But that's actually a good thing. Uh, do, you, do we really expect to know God fully when we're actually apart from him? And would we even want to? Um, Exodus 33:20 basically says, "If you see God's face, you can't live." <laughs> so um, and even when Moses asked him, you know, uh, had to cover Moses's face while he passed by with wind, there's just something about seeing God that's impossible while we're living here. Uh, whatever that is, it's not explained to us. Although I would, I would gather from the experiences that people in the old Testament had with God and even in the new, that there is something very terrifying that would be like a, a horror movie where you, you know, see what's that one. Oh, no, I'm not going to remember that. You're just dead you, you're, you're killed immediately when you see this image on tv or the girl comes out of the screen with the long hair i don't know whatever um the, the ring the ring that's right yes chelsea's giving me harry potter references over the here. no basilisk or whatever okay great so there's just something there all right and uh so be careful what we want here but this is uh, i think a good thing um god is is sort of saving in some ways full revelation until we're able to handle it the mystery, psych- practical takeaway here, constantly pushes us to think through relationship, okay? In my, I think, 11th grade physics class, which I barely passed, um, I remember one of the first days the teacher said there are the two most important um, words in the uh, uh, English language are relationship and change, and relationship is by far the more important. Now, he was talking about that in the physics concept, and that's probably the only thing I learned that entire year, um or at least remember but god's relationship with the godhead the trinity makes us think through relationship um most of us treat relationships transactionally our best relationships are like a quick conversation with the grocery store uh, cashier or a waiter in god's eyes they're very very devoid of the kind of meaning and depth god intends for us to have and god is pulling us closer into a more meaningful relationship with him, with others. Now, closeness comes with a cost, there's no doubt, um, but that's what he's doing. And I think that's what the relationship sort of challenges us to think through, modeling how to relate uh, um, with one another through the interactions with the spirit, uh, the father and the son. And then the last question is guys asking questions about the way God is portrayed in the old Testament is always a good thing. It just is. God intends for us to compare him to Jesus. When Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God, that that's our sign to say we're supposed to go back and compare God to Jesus to make sure that our understanding of God aligns with Jesus or not. But that's it's incumbent upon us to do that because they are together, equal, acting out of a mutual um, uh, purpose of, of glorifying who God is and telling us, uh, you know, what he wants us to know. So we'll always give us a clearer understanding. Um, the Trinity is God revealing himself to us. All right. Not holding back, not trying to confuse, but actually trying to clarify who he fully is. But again, with clarity comes sacrifice. The more you put yourself out there, the more fodder people have to reject and misinterpret who you are. Doing things in your name. And that's where the pr- principle, the stumbling block comes in. Intentionally presented himself in such a way as to cause people to stumble, to choose whether they really believe him or not. Now, that's a challenging idea and, and one that uh, requires a lot of thought, particularly a lot of thought as to why us, why not others, which is an entirely different conversation. <laughs> Uh, and one that's equally as difficult, I think, to, to completely understand. Someone asked the second point. The second point is just the mystery constantly pushes us towards a relationship with God and with others. Con- the mystery of his relationship. So I want to end with reading Matthew. It's uh, 30, 38. Does someone have that one? Matthew 23, 37. I think it's 37 to 38. I think it's 37 to the end of the chapter, actually.
8: Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her w- wings, but you were not willing. Lord, your house is left. Look, her, hang on. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
9: And then first Peter two, four through 12. Who's got that one? finish this off
2: so as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by god and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ from scripture it says cla stone in zion and chosen and precious cornerstone and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal, royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves. Oh, wait, no, that's it.
9: Yeah, that's good. So you see here, Jesus and Peter are both referencing the same scriptures in Isaiah and in Psalm 118 that talks about this building block um, that's ultimately going to be a stumbling block or a salvation point for people. A stone stumbles or it saves, and for us, that's really what the Trinity does, namely Jesus, is God in his wisdom has revealed himself in this way at these times, so as to cause some people to stumble and other people to be saved and that's the best explanation I have at least from scripture as to why this sort of trinity is explained like it is presented like it is Uh, and just that thought of the cornerstone um, you know requires a lot of understanding and thinking through but it's what we've mentioned up to this point already Um, uh, some of the things that people find laughable or not wise um, or even too simplistic in some ways or at least not simplistic enough in some other ways. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, this is kind of just a hard topic to discuss and understand, but hopefully this gave you at least some insight or at least a basic idea of how to think through this a little bit more on your own. We'll take like two minutes for questions. Since again, we've gone over uh, Aaron and Grant apparently think that they can take our sermon time away because worship is more important than us talking. So I <laughs> about that. Uh, <laughs> thanks mom for the laugh, courteous laugh. I like that. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. All right. Uh so yeah. Questions real quick. You got two minutes to ask questions about the Trinity. That should go well. I've sufficiently what? Efficient, sufficiently doused the flames of curiosity.
3: Well, one thing I've I just wondered about is like, you know how there's times where it just says like God's spirit in the old testament. Yeah. Um do you, can we just assume that, that is the Holy Spirit or is it meaning something different there? That might not be something we can know, but I just have been curious about that.
9: It's just an argument. People have an argument on both sides. About the Holy Spirit is meant for something else. Um, um, I think we can reference the passages that talk about the Spirit coming on someone, causing them to do uh, as being the Holy Spirit. Um, but other times, it mentions God's Spirit, but not kind of verb form. Um, that's a tricky one. <laughs> That's kind of what I mentioned at the beginning. So there's just, uh, yeah, there's different uh, viewpoints on it, and people are pretty strong in their viewpoints. It seems. Uh, so I've never really studied it enough to have like a strong opinion about it, or needed, or very concerned about trying to understand it. <laughs> I have a. Question. Anything else? I have one. So one you, minute, yeah, go for it. You kind of mentioned how like God might not have a body, but like we were made in God's image. So like, where
8: does that fit into
9: that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And I think that uh, the image comes back to like, certainly a part of God is being embodied, which is what we get through Jesus, right? Uh, And how that works in heaven. I definitely, the scripture portrays us as having bodies. There's no doubt about that. Um, How we will interact with God. I mean, again, the Garden of Eden talks about God walking around. Um, So I think it's just too tricky for us to say with any kind of certainty that God has a body, but I'm not even really worried that that's something we need to be too concerned with because we have Jesus and he's got a body. Uh, but I think it should encourage us to understand that we are more than just our bodies. Um, you know, the spirit and even just our mind, the way the Father kind of portrays that decision making role, are just different aspects to who we are. And the, the Trinity itself, um, you know, versus uh, Mormon theology, uh, places a, a much lower emphasis while at the same time a much higher emphasis than others on the human body so yeah i don't know maybe god does have a body maybe i, I, I maybe the spirit's got a body too i mean in the shack she's like a a really pretty asian or black oh. woman i don't remember Wait. like floating around so i don't no, even that's the
0: spirit the spirit is the, <laughs> the god the father
9: is i don't good. even understand brad yeah
8: how does the uh, fruit of the spirit fit into all this
9: yeah, the fruit of the Spirit is just what the Spirit does in our lives. It's the action that, uh, you know, these, these things um, that the Spirit is doing in us. You know, scripture talks about our own fruit, which has to do more with our relationship with others and our integrity and character. And then the fruit of the Spirit, which are those things that are, I think on our own would be way too hard to accomplish. So the Spirit is placed upon us so that uh, we're built in the image of Christ, something that the ancients really didn't have that we can appreciate all right that's it you got any questions email um yeah Uh, and end us off thank you guys for being patient the last two weeks as we've had technical issues and things of that nature i look forward to us getting back together again god you are great and we love you even though we have a very difficult time understanding you um at times particularly uh, just how uh, you've revealed yourself in Jesus and the Holy Spirit that you've placed um, in our hearts. And um, just ask that you would give us clarity on who you are and what you want for us, that each of us wouldn't sacrifice our um, relationship with you directly um, through uh, a relationship by proxy, and knowing about you through the church or through other people, that we would continually uh, hear from your Spirit. Um, your spirit would talk to us, that we would gain um, just a better understanding of who you are um, experientially, uh, not just knowledge of who you are. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week.